The statements and views expressed in the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University's School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about vulnerability theory and how it can transform and is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. My name is Mangala Kanesan. Today, I am grateful to have Dr. Atieno Mboya Samandari here on the show as my guest. Atieno, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Samandari is an adjunct professor at Emory University and a postdoctoral fellow of the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative. She is interested in the intersection of environmental justice and vulnerability theory. So let's go ahead and get right into it. In 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? Vulnerability theory has three aspects to it. One is that um, the idea of the human body going through life cycle from birth to death is something that we all share as human beings. A second one is that relationships that we develop and are situated in can confer resilience throughout the life cycle. And the third factor is that um, our positioning vis-a-vis other human beings, vis-a-vis institutions, the state, matter for our resilience as we go through the life cycle. Can you tell me a little bit about what resilience is? Resilience is... um, really the ability to, one, bounce back from misfortune um, or harm, and also to be able to to really build the kind of life or experience that one finds meaningful and, and fulfilling for oneself at the individual level. At a community or societal level, I'd say resilience is really about a society or a country, state, being able to advance on a positive path towards providing you know, all the resources and facilities that the the people living there need. So in addition to teaching, you are also conducting research, is that correct? That's right. And what is your current research about? My research is in the area of climate change and environmental justice. And so I'm looking at the life cycle approach of vulnerability theory and applying it in the global context of climate change, where I look at um, sort of more mature states, popularly known as the global north states and and newer emergent states like global south states and their positioning the global political economy and what this means for their resilience or vulnerability in the face of climate change. Can you tell me a bit about what vulnerability on a state level looks like? Vulnerability on the state level is actually linked to the functioning or lack thereof of state institutions. Okay, um, A key aspect of vulnerability theory is the idea that the state should be able to respond to the needs of its citizens. And a responsive state is one that um, can enact um, public laws and um, public policies that will advance social justice and ensure the well-being of its uh, of its citizens. So in the context of climate change, when we look at um, states in the global political economy, then we, we see that mature states have more resilience. They have the institutional setup 
to adapt to climate change, prepare themselves for adverse climate events, while younger states, emerging states like global south states, they have less resilience because the institutions are one are newer and oftentimes they also face the challenge of not having enough resources to strengthen their institutions that would be relevant for building their resilience to negative climate impacts. How do you distinguish between mature states versus states that are not as mature? What's the criteria for that? Pretty much looking, maybe going way back to the Westphalia Conference and uh, the beginning of of the state project in Europe. So uh, the point at which a state comes into existence really marks its birth in some ways, which parallels the birth of an individual person. And over time, that state matures as the citizens work out what their values are, what kind of governance they want, what kind of institutions are meaningful to them. And so we see that for states that existed since the 1700s to now, they really have a very different contextual and even um, allegiance to the idea of statehood than states that maybe emerged in the 1950s and 1960s during the independence movement after World War II. You alluded to this a little bit in your response just now, but how do states accrue resilience over time? It's largely linked to their ability to um, use resources that we find on the planet to build their economies and then also to build governance mechanisms that um, that ensure even or uh, not, not necessarily even equitable distribution of the resources that that state has at its disposal. So at, at the individual level, when we're coming back to vulnerability theory, the equivalent of that would be like the relationships a child is born into, for example, if that child is born into a family that has, you know, financial resources or even relationship resources that make it possible for this child to grow and flourish into adulthood, then you can say this is a resilient um, child and that has really a life cycle that will manifest this kind of success. But if a child is born into poverty, um, where the relationships are not able to sustain the normal needs of the life cycle, then you can say such a child is less resilient. So we can transfer that idea to the state level and where younger states, global south states, are really at the early stages of acquiring um, the economic resources that they need to build successful state societies. How do historical power dynamics play into a state's ability to accrue resilience in the ways you just explained? Those power dynamics, the historical experience is absolutely crucial and key. And um, when we look especially at um, the the, the pattern of statehood is really one that has emerged through empire and conquest and colonialism. And depending on which side of that enterprise a state was on, in large part determines how resilient it is in the 21st century. So for countries that, um, especially like after the Industrial Revolution, were able to go out and conquer and colonize other parts of the world, they, they were able to use that advantage to, to really create strong, resilient societies today. For countries that were the colonized or were under empire and you know had to fight for independence and are still really locked into a global political economy that in many ways still echoes and mirrors the realities of colonialism, we find that their resilience in the wake of climate change is very challenging. So what questions does your research attempt to answer? My, my research is really looking at um, how can positioning in the global political economy be rethought and reconceived to ensure um, equitable 
climate resilience for all states, because we know that climate change is a global, it's a planetary phenomenon, okay? We're all vulnerable to it. All countries, all societies are vulnerable to it. And in terms of the negative impacts, um, it's become apparent that newly young states, global south states, they really stand to suffer the, the worst fallout from climate change because they don't have the resources to prepare themselves for adverse climate effects and um, to anticipate them. So, so my research is really looking at the, the global political economy and how this idea of universal human vulnerability can be harnessed for states to try and find a way of bringing uh, a greater equipoise to um, availability to resources, to global institutions, so that it's not just the wealthy states that, quote unquote, would survive climate change, but also the newly established ones can also have that resilience. Because we're all in this together. I don't think any any state is dispensable in the wake of climate change. No, no society is. I read an article recently about how there's this overarching philosophy that the Western world holds that states that humans should conquer nature and are in some way superior to and separate from nature. How do you think that, well, do you think that that has an impact on the way that these global North states are approaching international attempts to address climate change versus the way that global south states are. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's very true. Um, sort of Western civilization, you know, took off really at the time of the Enlightenment where this idea of dualism, separation of science um, from religion emerged. They have this idea of um, we can use science to understand nature and transcend nature, which is valid in many ways. But I think by taking that idea too far and seeing ourselves not as part of nature and inherent to it, but as using nature just to serve our needs, which today really revolves around consumption, um, that's where really the problem comes in with um, a lack of sustainability. And then, of course, the emission of greenhouse gas gases that pretty much dates to um, the current crisis dating back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the West. So when we look at this approach to, to nature, to the environment, and the idea that the environment is something for us to just exploit and um, further a consumerist model of development, that's, that's very problematic. But it's also interesting that that kind of idea is actually a minority idea. Okay, most of the peoples and societies in the world, and when we go back even historically, we realize that most societies try to live in harmony with their environment. Okay, they try to live sustainably with their environment. And today we still have examples of these societies in, in many rural areas around the world, and there are lessons we can draw on sustainability from those societies. And so that's, that's really one of the projects of um, not just environmental law, but climate resilience that we look at, what lessons can we learn from societies that haven't wholesale embraced the idea that the environment is just for us to consume. Where are those voices and why aren't we hearing them? Those voices, unfortunately, are voices that are marginalized in the global political discourse, largely because, um, you know, they live in places and in the life where they're not really competing for 
the consumer goods that drive life in the West. Okay, there's there's that dimension to it as well. We do have um, like civil society groups in many countries that um, at times speak on behalf of these populations or share the knowledge they draw from these populations. But we know that civil society itself often has um, if you like, a marginal seat at global negotiations. Okay, states are pretty much the voice that can drive the global agenda for climate change. And so through my work with vulnerability theory and my research and writing, I'm hoping that, you know, my publications can make a contribution that can have an impact on how states look at this issue. What are some of these specific findings that you're encountering? Uh, specific findings is there's a lot of resistance to change, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, And uh, for in, in the international arena, when we look at the principle of international law, when states were formed, the principle of state sovereignty is like a cardinal principle. Okay, I'm sovereign over this territory as a state, and so other states cannot encroach on my sovereignty. This is one of the first and fundamental problems we have in environmental law, because Earth's resources are not, um, they're not limited by state boundaries. The Earth's ecosystem is one planetary ecosystem that often transcends state boundaries. And so the principle of state sovereignty is really one of the biggest barriers that states have to address if we are to have successful climate change response. And we see that, you know, there is progressive movements, especially when we look at sort of the economic interconnection of states, trade barriers, removing of trade barriers. States are not completely averse to um, giving up some of their sovereignty. But the question then becomes, are they willing to give it up for the good of the whole planet? Or are they only willing to give it up when there's an economic gain um, that they stand to, to, to get? We're actually doing this interview at a very interesting time. We've had a lot in the news about the Amazon rainforest, which is one of our most important carbon sinks burning. Or what have you seen in the discourse around that? How do you hope that your research can help impact the way that we respond to these things? You're right. The Amazon is burning. The Arctic is melting. You know, name it. We have all these crises. Sea levels are rising. The, the, I think for me, the promising thing with vulnerability theory is that it really is sort of a level playing field where we look at this from a human plane and not necessarily from a plane of differentiation. Okay. We find that other approaches to many approaches to social justice that are valid and important that we've built today, many of them sometimes are built on the fact that I'm different from you is why I need to get justice. Okay, human vulnerability is saying there are certain commonalities we all share as human beings that go through a similar life cycle from birth to death. And so my argument is that actually that similar life cycle can be transferred to, to nation states and societies. They have their point of formation, their point of development, and hopefully a point of flourishing and, um, and a point of unity and unification with other states. And, and so this idea of looking at a problem from a foundation of commonality and the fact that we have something that we share together rather than something that shows that we are different, that we are competing over. To me, this is the, one of the promising elements of using vulnerability theory, because in the area of environment, climate change, we need a unified global response. And to attain a unified response to anything, you have to focus on your commonalities, not on your differences. Can you tell me a bit about the ways and mechanisms that we could have a global response to climate change? 
That is, I think, the project of our times. <laughs> Again, uh, <laughs> if I had the answer as one scholar, that would be amazing. But I think um, for all of us um, that care about the climate problem, we can find, you know, our little contribution to it. Our contribution can be as little as making sure that I throw my trash in the right receptacle. Okay, if we have 7 billion people just playing that role every day, that would make a world of difference, for example, in terms of things like recycling, in terms of what goes into landfills, in terms of whether even landfills exist. So so I think there's a role for everybody. And um, for, for my work, I'm really looking at legal theory and legal philosophy because we know that really the, the bottom line of of um, how states function, how society function rests on law, the laws they have. And uh, in many ways, the intractable problems we face are problems of theory, meaning how we are thinking and how we're approaching problems. And uh, vulnerability theory is saying we need to approach this from a unified platform. That, that really draws in what we all share as human beings. And so, so so that area of theory of trying to open up new theoretical spaces for redesigning law, redefining law, and rearticulating law's purpose in society is really where my work is. Can you identify the current prevailing political philosophy or theory that dominates our rhetoric around environmental concerns? I think it's the same theory that um, dominates really how just about everything we are seeing um, with the global political economy today, which is that human beings are inherently selfish. This is going way back to John Locke and people, that we're inherently selfish and we look to maximize our own gains. Okay, Um, And I think that's where the fundamental problem then comes in because we design laws that um, that defend what we feel are our gains and keep others out. And when we look at the history of, of, of humanity and even of state formation, this idea of the selfish human being is actually a novel idea that has now come into fruition. If you like, it's come into fruition as consumerism is the best thing, is the reason why we exist on this planet. And the more I can consume for myself, um, that's what happiness is. But there's really a question as to what about all the sharing that we've seen in, in society historically that we continue to see today? Even when you look at, say, poor societies, the poor will share what they have with other poor when they see that one person needs more than they do. So so this one-sided look of of the human being as just a selfish, a selfish um, creature, I think, is, is really one of the fundamental errors that we've built law upon. And uh, we need to rethink it and look at law also as an instrument that can facilitate the, the sharing and the idea of cooperation and collaboration that human beings also exhibit all the time. Who benefits from the idea of the human being as this inherently selfish consumer? Those that have the ability to purchase consumer goods, basically. Okay, so, um, you know, if, if I have the ability to purchase a certain pair of shoes and I don't really need it because I already have five other pairs of shoes, I'll go ahead and do it because I, have, I feel like I want it and I've got the money for it. While for, say, you, you need money for, for dinner tonight and you don't have that, okay, um, then the selfish approach is like, well, that's too bad for you. For some reason, you didn't work hard enough to have the money that I have. So that consumer approach to um, to human fru- human um, fruition, I think, is is really something that is closely tied to the ability of um, having more or less in terms of economic resources.
And who would you like to see benefit from political philosophy? Well, <laughs> you know, I think one of the, the things, again, about vulnerability theory that I like is that it's very easy for me to say, I'd, you know, I'd like the have-nots to be the beneficiaries. But, mm-hmm. you know, vulnerability theory also is an arena where we're saying, you know, let's not look at this as if I have, it means you don't have. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's look at it as, you know, what is really the equitable thing to do? Maybe it means you should have a little bit less, but it doesn't mean you should have nothing at all. So I can have it in turn. Okay, so this idea of recalibrating interests and um, and seeing that distributional effects and distributional impacts, which the state should really be spearheading, because the state is the one that really has should have its pulse on all the needs within its society. Um, the distributional impacts of law is something that I think vulnerability theory says. You know, the state should look at positioning of the different subjects under it and make sure that it uses its distributive power through law to ensure that there isn't extreme poverty or even extreme wealth, I would argue. You spoke a little bit about how more mature states that are more resilient are better able to weather climate change than newer states that are less resilient. Does that parallel human individuals and their ability to weather climate change? I I think it does, because usually you'll find that um, if you're you're a wealthy individual, you probably live in in a house that's better built to withstand the environment you're in. You'll probably pick a location to live in that isn't necessarily um, going to face adverse weather events. Or if you are, then you've built, you know, sort of the barriers that will help you adapt to it. So I think you can find, for sure, you can find that parallel at the individual human level as well. But even within wealthy societies, the poor within those societies are not as resilient. And one example we look at is um, just, um, you know, in in Louisiana here in the U.S., you know, when the hurricane came through, the first fallout was from the poorest communities, yet, you know, America is the richest country in the world. So it doesn't mean that if a state is wealthy, automatically all of its inhabitants are resilient to negative impacts of climate change. Not at all. And so we are seeing this differentiation even within wealthy countries, which tells us that um, resilience is very closely tied to access to resources, regardless of whether you're living in a wealthy state or, or a poorer state. But wealthy states, of course, have more resources that they could more quickly distribute to even the poor within their own countries. What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today? I think that we have hope in the legal field in terms of looking at theory, rethinking the theory underlying law and the emphasis on law. Like I said, in in many ways, law is really the bottom line for a society and how society operates. And so the theory underlying that bottom line is crucial because that theory will determine what those laws look like. And the fact that we have scholars really pushing the boundaries of legal theory and looking for ways of understanding the human experience that can actually make law a true instrument of social justice, I think is a very hopeful sign. And for that reason, um, vulnerability theory is a very exciting place to be in today. Thank you very much for sitting and doing an interview with me today, Atiana. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.